from KQED. What? So this is how this is how Brian Bashan when he checks his email, this is what he hears. Can he understand anything? Yeah, he understands all of that. Wait, play it again. This is how he wants it. Why? Because he is listening to this as quickly as we read. This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen, and this is Judy Campbell. So you told me before that Brian's blind. So I'm assuming this is something that he's learned to do because of that? Yeah, he lost his vision when he was a teenager. So this is something he had to learn how to do over time. I started it. I'll, I'll show you what I started it like. I'll just slow it down. No? A beginning student might listen to something like, But he just kept hitting the faster button, and eventually the way he was reading became invisible. The information was just in his head. It's just like when you read a book, you may not remember that the font was Garamond or whatever. You just read a book. And it's the same thing here. It's just like, I just I just read some emails. Oh, yeah, I guess I listened to them. Brian says he can go through a thousand emails in a day, easily, as quickly as a sighted person. And he gets that many emails because he's the head of a nonprofit group in San Francisco called Lighthouse for the Blind. And a lot of the email he gets has to do with donations that various people want to make to that organization. And today's story has to do with one particular email that came in about a year ago from a law firm in Seattle. There was just something about the email that was a little mysterious in its compactness. A businessman has passed away. He remembered the lighthouse in his will. I think you might want to talk to us. The businessman was named Don Serkin. He ran an insurance company based in Seattle. Serkin had never donated to the lighthouse before. No one there had ever heard of him. And yet in his will, with no explanation at all, Serkin had left almost his entire estate to the lighthouse, this nonprofit that doesn't even operate in Washington state, that had never heard of Serkin. Brian asked the lawyers, how much money are we talking? Could you, could you estimate? Is this how large of a request? And then they started talking about millions of dollars in stocks and bonds and a large building. And at that time, it was clear that the total amount was going to exceed $100 million. A little more than $125 million. To put this into scale, it's more than 15 times the Lighthouse's annual budget. According to Brian, it's the largest single gift ever given to a blindness organization. It's one of those experiences where time kind of stands still, where you know that every little bit of what you're experiencing will be engraved in your memory, because you know that this is the moment that everything was going to change. And it was breathtaking. This is the dream that we all have, and it just happened to me. Brian is 60 years old, tall and almost always smiling. His eyes are cloudy, he walks with a cane, and the impression he gives is of being just this entirely functional, confident, blind person. But it turns out that the Brian I know is a relatively recent incarnation. Because for a long time, between when he started losing his vision in his teens until he was 38 years old and at about 10% of normal vision, Brian didn't identify as blind at all. I didn't say the B word. I used euphemisms if I had to. Um, Like what? The lingo of the day. 
visual impairment, low vision, visual challenge, that kind of thing, preposterous language. He says what a lot of sighted people don't realize is that blindness is rarely an all or nothing kind of thing. It's not that total blackness walking around with a blindfold on experience that at least I had imagined. Brian says for him, it's kind of like looking at the world through wax paper. He can see some light, some color. He can't see people. He can't read signs, but he faked it. I was a clever guy, so I used magnifiers and lights and mental maps and all kinds of ways to basically form workarounds, still visual workarounds. Most Americans who have some kind of vision loss are in this category. Most never use a cane or a dog or braille or any of the things that are identifiably blind. like when somebody says, you see that over there? And I would nod and say, yeah, I, I see that. I didn't, I didn't see that. I miss stuff in the movies. I planned to do my travel while it was still light so I wouldn't have the bewilderment of how I was going to get home in the darkness. In the blind community, we say we're in the closet about it. And it is just like being in the closet in the gay community. You try to pass and you try to be somebody that you're not. But Brian was pretty good at being in the closet. He graduated from UC Berkeley, got a job in journalism. But as he got older, all those workarounds got harder and harder to pull off. They were time-consuming, exhausting. Finally, when Brian was 38, he decided to take a leap. He couldn't hide being blind anymore, so he decided to embrace it, to come out, to start learning how to be a blind person. But what he found on the other side of that leap was depressing. He hated it. I went to my local blindness agency, and I found a social service agency with stuffing coming out of the chairs and buzzing air conditioners and hadn't been painted in decades. For Brian, all of this felt symbolic. The place lacked dignity. It wasn't trying to impress or to please Brian, because Brian, it seemed to be saying, and by extension, blind people in general, didn't matter. It was demoralizing to me. It was like if I, if I wasn't already depressed about looking at the rest of my life blind, that would have done it for me. I mean, it, it telegraphed to so many things. It telegraphed to the so-called introductory support groups, which were grieving sessions, instead of launching the next phase of your life. None of that period made me feel like I could be a cool blind person and do stuff in the future. What did it make you feel like? I felt ashamed. I felt confirmed in my suspicion that blindness would be a diminishment of my potential. And I felt resolved that I would never set foot in that place again. But he did get something out of it. He started using blind people tools, like that super-fast speech software you heard earlier. And very quickly, everything got easier. The moment I learned that, I was vastly quicker as a writer than compared with using giant monitors and giant letters on a screen. So since then, Brian's made it his life's mission to help other blind people do the same. He got a job at the place with the ripped up couches. He started preaching this idea that with the right tools and training, blindness can often be reduced to the level of inconvenience. Don't just hide. This is not a tragedy or a shame. 
This is not some kind of deep loss. This is just another side of being human. Share it. Play with it. Grow with it. I wondered about this. I mean, I'm familiar with the idea that disability can be redefined. I get how a term like differently abled, which I bet is too PC even for Brian, takes something negative and makes it positive. But what does that look like in practice? A few months ago, Brian introduced me to a guy named Will Butler. He's 26 and he's a writer. Like Brian, he started going blind when he was a teenager. And also like Brian, he hid it. He had a cane, but he kept it folded up in his backpack. And all these sort of half-funny, half-annoying things would happen to him, like he couldn't find a tip jar at a cafe, or at one time he almost got arrested because he peed on the outside of a police station. And then one day, he finally started using his cane. As soon as you pick it up, you don't have to explain yourself anymore, and you don't have to fear negative repercussions about your eyesight anymore, and you don't have to hide from the world anymore. People are going to tell you where the tip jar is and what the menu says. Yeah. Um, People aren't going to think you're drunk everywhere you go. And he realized something else, too. This thing that he'd been hiding for so long was actually an asset. When you're a kid, the premium is on fitting in. And the thing they don't tell you when you become an adult is that the absolute best thing you can do is to stick out, you know, is to be different. And for Will, blindness is that, or at least part of that. Yes, it can be a pain. Some things are harder, but it's part of what makes him interesting. And if you think about it, this is about so much more than blindness. It's anyone who has ever tried to do anything creative. There's this point where you realize that whatever makes you a little bit strange is actually the most useful part of you. There comes this moment where you have to figure out what that is and sort of bring it forward. Take this thing that was shameful and hidden and put it out in front. A leap. That's the crux of Brian Bashan's whole project. He would like more people to think about blindness the way Will Butler does, as an interesting, valuable difference. But that's a tall order. For blind people, maybe even most blind people in this country, just getting by can be a challenge. The unemployment rate among working-age blind people is 50%. That's 10 times the national average. It's much easier to get disability checks than it is to get job training, or even to learn the basics of how to get around as a blind person and live independently. Those kinds of skills are expensive. They take time to learn. If you want to really master walking around using a white cane, that's that's two, three, four hundred hours of training with somebody being paid to work with you. Same thing with computers. Same things with finding employment. So for Brian to talk about all these lofty goals, like changing the whole conversation about blindness, was kind of a luxury. I mean, this is a guy who spends more than half his time fundraising just to cover the basic services. But now suddenly, thanks to Don Serkin, this mysterious businessman in Seattle who had died and left the lighthouse $125 million, luxuries were okay to think about. I grasped it in a flash. I saw that it would change everything. When you get right down to it, the Serkin bequest is about feeling like we can dream and have options and be proud of who we are. But think also how intimidating this must have been. The scope of this gift, its suddenness, the fact that it came from nowhere and landed squarely on his lap is not lost on Brian. You know all the stories about people who win the lottery. It's not always the happiest life afterwards. You have to do something with that money. 
I can't tell you what Brian did with this money or whether he's been able to make some seismic shift in the way that we think about blindness because he doesn't know yet. The money has basically just arrived. They haven't decided how they're going to spend it. There will be a beautiful new building with no ripped up couches. And there's also the idea to give MacArthur Genius Type Awards for blind people who do extraordinary things or invent some kind of game-changing tool. But that is all in the future. The second half of this story, right after you hear about our sponsors, is about something else, a message from the dead. It's about this mysterious Seattle businessman, Donald Serkin, who left his fortune to an organization that had never heard of him. Who was he? Why did he do what he did? That's coming up in a minute. So let's talk about Don Serkin, the self-made multimillionaire who left his fortune to a small blindness nonprofit in San Francisco, a place that had never heard of him. After Brian Bashan found out about Serkin's will, he made a trip to Seattle, where Don Serkin had lived. Remember, Serkin left $125 million to Brian's organization, but with no explanation, just a few legal sentences and a three-page will. So for Brian, this trip to Seattle was an attempt to reconstruct this man from the dead, to figure out why he left so much money to a group of total strangers. Brian took his tape recorder and interviewed everyone he could find who had known Serkin, including Serkin's ex-girlfriend. And he had, you know, he had charisma. He had electricity. Did you know him? Her name is Sue Tripp, and here she's talking to Brian and to another Lighthouse employee. You didn't know him? That is crazy. Sue met Serkin through a personal ad. Well, I answered Donald's ad in the Seattle Weekly. I, it was 1988 or 1989. I was 50 and he was about to be 61. They talked on the phone, made a date to meet on a Sunday down by the Seattle waterfront. And when she met him, the Don she saw was not the Don she'd been expecting. When we talked on the telephone, he sounded, I just had this image of this big guy smoking a cigar, you know, because of his voice and everything. And there was this guy standing beside a parking meter, as I recall, a very tiny man. Serkin was on one of those caloric restriction diets, the kind where you live forever by not really eating anything. But he really liked spoiling Sue. Early on in our relationship, he said to me, where in the world would you like to go? The, the answer was New York City. So Serkin took her to New York, but he wouldn't sightsee. All he wanted to do was exercise. I would go out and go sightseeing to Carnegie Hall and Statue of Liberty, and, and he would stay at the hotel and exercise. In these interviews that Brian did, themes emerge. The compulsive exercising, the compulsive working, this huge need to show off, to be the center of attention. 
Like, for example, there's this trademark move that Sirkin had. It comes up in a few of these interviews that Brian did, like this one with Bob Dorse, one of Sirkin's colleagues. And so he got out of his chair and he got on his hands and he started walking around the table on his hands about three times. Don came in, you know, walking on his hands. And here's Sirkin's longtime mentee, Robert Palfrey. Change flying out of his pockets. He made his entrance. Remember, Brian wanted to understand why Don Serkin had made this bombshell bequest, $125 million, to a group that had never heard of him. And one thing that comes out in these interviews is that Serkin loved a big gesture. Here's Scott Collins, Serkin's lawyer. Don gets up and says, okay, it's time for me to leave. And he gives each one of us a $100 bill. It says, enjoy your dinner. There's a fondness in these interviews. These are people who liked Don Serkin. They're also people who got money from his will, albeit much smaller amounts. Missing from Brian's tapes are Don Serkin's children. He had two, a daughter and a son, and neither of them wanted to be interviewed. The kids didn't get much from the will, relatively speaking, $250,000 apiece. That's compared to the lighthouse's $125 million. In May, his daughter Anna sued the Serkin estate. Her complaint says her father hit her and touched her sexually. She says this happened dozens of times. If she wins, she could get a small percentage of what would otherwise go to the lighthouse. To tell the truth, I'm not really sure what to do with these allegations. Anna told us through her lawyer that she didn't want to talk to us for this story, so I can't ask her about her father. To me, and to Brian too, Donald Serkin is a black box, a mystery estranged from his family, reclusive even to those who worked with him. A guy who made this dramatic final gesture, this extravagant gift to people he'd never met. The interviews help fill in the picture, but not entirely. A lot of people admired Don, but when you listen to the interviews, you don't really get the sense that a lot of people really knew him. Last year, Brian went to see Serkin's house, which now belonged to the Lighthouse. He brought Jennifer Sachs with him. She's the Lighthouse's director of development, and she can see. His house was right on the edge of Puget Sound, overlooking, um, you know, the water. Absolutely incredible views from every single window. But it was falling apart. Jennifer says crows had pecked away at the shingles. The roof was crumbling. And inside, it was packed with stuff. Piles of old papers, paintings, kind of cheesy ones, she says, stacked on top of each other. As they walked, Jennifer narrated to Brian every painting, every book. Having Brian put his hands on anything that was tactile and, um, you know, we spent many, many hours looking around that house. He's all about discovering new things in philosophy, in diet. Here's Brian again. In religion. The guy was a autodidact of the first order. Thousands of books stacked everywhere, from Bertrand Russell to Yoga for Health. Not only on the bookshelf, but on the ground. 50 or 60 clocks. Like, really cheap plastic clocks. Stuffed animals, a bronze giraffe. Just enormous amounts of stuff everywhere. What Brian wanted, of course, were clues. And pretty quickly, he found them. As we wandered through his house, we saw all these gadgets, giant light boxes full-spectrum light, um, magnifiers, giant magnifiers, enormous plasma TVs in his kitchen and throughout his house. Brian recognized this stuff because he'd used it himself back when he was trying to hide his blindness. It appeared that Don Serkin, too, had lost his sight. He'd kept it a secret from almost everyone he knew. Instead of getting help or learning to use a cane, it seems he tried to bring his eyesight back with special diets. We found, I don't know 
how many hundred bottles of pomegranate juice because he was on a kick about that and then on canned salmon and then on other antioxidant treatments. Tom Neely, Sirkin's friend, says Sirkin became more reclusive than ever. I would try to reach out to him and, and offer to come and visit with him, but he would, um, I, you know, usually I would just get no response. Losing his vision, too proud to admit it, too proud or stubborn or something to get help, Sirkin did what a lot of blind people do. He holed up in his house, in this case, in a little room off the side of the kitchen. You know, as I sit here, I don't know how he died. Um, did he die alone? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And, but it saddens me, you know. In the end, Sirkin's heart gave out on him. His body wasn't discovered for days. We all try and control the way we look from the outside. But after a certain point, for Brian, for Will Butler, for Donald Sirkin, there came a moment when that just wasn't feasible. Brian and Will made the conscious decision to dive into blindness, not just grudgingly accept what was different about them, but highlight it, proclaim its virtues. Donald Sirkin, and I'm speculating here, but I wonder if he just couldn't bring himself to do that. This guy who could still walk on his hands in his 70s finally ran up against something he couldn't overcome. No amount of pomegranate juice was going to make him see again. So he hid. Full of pride, estranged from his family, maybe that leap was just more than he could muster. But he did something else. He left a boatload of money to a group of people who could have helped him but didn't get the chance. If Sirkin couldn't pull it off, maybe some future generation of blind people will. The Leap is produced by me, Judy Campbell. And me, Amy Sandin. With production help from Annie Brown. The scoring and audio mix is by Seth Samuel, and Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're just about to hear. Here at KQED, the team includes Jason Black, Cecilia Lay, Susie Oki, Joanne Wallace, and Matt Williams. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. You'll get new episodes delivered automatically. They'll come every other week, and it'll make our bosses really happy. And while you're at it, please leave a comment in iTunes. That helps us, and it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much.